Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. Today's feast is 40 days after the birth of Jesus, and it marks the end of the Christmas season. Our uh, tree has held on to the end. The last vestige of our Christmas decorations made it to today's feast to close out this season before we ready ready ourselves for the pre-Lent of Septuagesima Tide, which is right around the corner. This feast is a very ancient feast in the church's liturgical calendar, and it has numerous themes and names, actually reflecting those themes, which can be confusing sometimes. Our gospel this morning uh, with Luke mentions the reason for the Holy Family coming to Jerusalem, making about a five and a half mile trip from Bethlehem after the birth of Christ to the temple and Jerusalem, He says, and when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Those are two different customs he references there in that verse. Um, First, Mary's purification, and second, the redemption of the firstborn male child. Concerning the purification, a new mother whether male or female, by the way, was considered ritually unclean after birth. And in the case of a boy, that lasted for 40 days, after which she was to come and offer a sacrifice to restore her to becoming being ritually clean. And in the case of a poor family, uh, they were allowed to offer two doves or pigeons. And in the case of the Holy Family, that's what they did. The second custom, which is different than the first, It's not the purification. It is actually the redemption of the firstborn male. And he mentions both here. This goes back to God sparing the firstborn male Israelite in Egypt. You know, when the uh, pharaohs, uh, in Egypt there, the story of the Egyptian firstborn were killed and the Israelites were spared. This firstborn male Israelite from that time was considered special to God and was consecrated to God, and was expected to serve God in an extra special capacity and way. When the Levitical priesthood was instituted, the Levites replaced this role as the uh, priestly caste. And they replaced the firstborn male service in this special way. And so the law was adjusted uh, to reflect this, but the family had to redeem their firstborn male, so that they didn't have to serve in this capacity. And they did that uh, to the tune of about five shekels. So they brought this money to the temple, and they redeemed the firstborn male. Uh, And that is also what Luke is referencing, these two customs in, in, in his gospel here. The purification with the required sacrifice, and the redemption by money of the firstborn male. The other themes that are present here are the meeting of the Holy Family with the aged Simeon and the prophetess Anna, and also, as we have the blessing of candles and procession, which became an especially important aspect of this feast in the West. The East adopted this 
uh, here and there, but I don't think universally, but in some places in the East, um, they did adopt the blessing of candles. But in the West, it's ubiquitous. It's a very major part of the feast. In the East, the feast is known as the meeting. In the West, its proper name is the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But just to confuse you, sometime later on in the West, it came to be called sometimes the presentation of the Lord. But its official name is the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the West, or the meeting in the East. And colloquially, we actually call it Candle Mass. <laughs> so, now that we're all thoroughly confused, um, but that's really how we refer to this day uh, colloquially as Candle Mass. There are many themes in this feast and in this reading which are fair game for the preacher. I mean, we could focus on the purification of the pure one. We could focus on the redemption of the Redeemer. We could focus on uh, Simeon's great Nunc Dominus, that great, most beautiful canticle in all of the New Testament. Uh, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, a light to lighten the Gentiles. We could focus on many things. But there is one theme which Luke emphasizes, I think above all others, and which is certainly emphasized in our mass propers, in our readings, even in the office this morning, the readings from our office, um, and in our mass propers. There is one theme that is focused on. And Luke, in fact, uses the custom of purification and the redemption of the firstborn child uh, to set the stage for his primary message. In other words, it is these things that get them to the place where they need to be. And that is this convergence of these characters, this meeting in the Holy Temple. That is the emphasis. The rites of purification and redemption of the firstborn are what bring the Holy Family to the Temple. But the emphasis is on them coming to the Temple and this convergence of characters in the Temple. That's the primary theme. And that's what shows up in our introit this morning. You know, our introit, the first lines from the introit, are what name the Mass. Every Mass has a name in Latin. And the name of the Mass is for those first few lines of the introit. We said in our introit, taken from Psalm 48 this morning, we wait for thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. In the midst of thy temple. The theme is this holy meeting in the temple of Jerusalem. And yet it's really about the true temple, the true temple which has come to tabernacle among us. God, who is outside and beyond all creation, and therefore beyond our knowing and our experience, our direct experience, he has deigned by his humility and by his love to enter into a temple, to enter into his very own creation, so that he can be known by that creation. God built, and then he entered into a temple. He tabernacled among men. This theme of God tabernacling within his creation, which is a great expression of his humility, this theme is with us from the very beginning in the scriptures, from the very creation. The temple of his presence is conveyed, even in the garden of paradise, which if you study it out in Genesis, it is structured as an arboreal temple, a garden temple. And later the tabernacle 
and the temple reflect this original garden temple in the aesthetics and decoration and structure. The theme of the temple of God's presence is constant throughout the scriptural revelation. And we come to our story today in Luke's gospel. Think about these characters. Think about Anna. Anna, the widow and prophetess. She did not leave the temple, he says. She stayed in the temple, offering prayers night and day. She stayed in the temple. She lived and resided in the temple. Think about Simeon, the aged, righteous one, who had waited so many years, waited for this day. And it says Simeon was in the Spirit. The Spirit was upon Simeon. And Simeon was taken by the Spirit to the temple. By the Spirit, he was taken to the temple where he would find the Savior. Then there is the Blessed Virgin Mary. She herself is chosen by God to be the very ark. The very ark of God. The very tabernacle of God. The very one who would house the God-man in her very flesh. She would become quite literally the dwelling place, the temple of God. She and Joseph bring Jesus. Jesus, who is God himself, in the substance of our flesh, as our colic says. In the substance of our flesh, meaning that Jesus himself is the final and true temple of God. The humanity that he assumed, it is the fulfillment of all the temple motifs, types, and symbols that have existed from the Garden of Eden on. Remember Jesus said, destroy this temple. Speaking of his body, the Jews thought he meant this temple of stone. Destroy this temple, and in three days he would raise it up. Well, he did also destroy that temple too, and he did not raise it up. All of these characters converge and come to meet in the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God. But this temple of stone is only a shadow and a type. And as I said, it is going to be destroyed not many years from now. And it is not going to be rebuilt because the true temple has come and he has risen from the dead and is immortal. He is the eternal temple, the very meeting place of God and man. So think about the beauty of the imagery and the overlapping layers here of this imagery. An actual temple, the Blessed Virgin, brings the ultimate temple, the true temple, the God-man, into the stone temple, which will be destroyed by the judgment of God because it has become a profane idol. Just as a small aside, St. Simeon, and he offers two oracles in this passage, and in one of them he speaks of this judgment. He references it, intimates the judgment that will come because of the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, if you doubt my insistence on Luke's theme, all you have to do is open up, open up to chapter 2 and look at the very next story he tells. Immediately after these verses in, the very next verses say, I'm shortening them just a little bit, and when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple. 
That is the immediate passage right after this story of his presentation in the temple at 40 days old. Jesus, the boy, separated from his family, being about his father's business in the temple. Remember our introit. We say, for us, we, and we mean we, we wait for God in the midst of the temple. The temple of God, it is the holy city coming down out of heaven. It is Mount Zion. It is an innumerable host of righteous men made perfect, a great cloud of witnesses. It is the church and the assembly of the firstborn, Jesus Christ. It is his body. It is divine, but it is also human. It is mystical, invisible, transcendent, but it is also visible, hierarchical, sacramentable, tangible, and concrete. It is ordered. You and I, we are birthed into it by water, by a rite and a ceremony, which is a real birth, a real transformation enacted by the eternal spirit. We remain in communion with it. We exist within it. We thrive within it. We live within it through the reception of the very real and mystical eating of the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. This temple is mystical, and we are mystically members of it, but it is also an address. It has an address, an actual address. I'm not speaking metaphorically now. You can put the address in your GPS, and it will lead you here, at 8500, you know, what is our address anyway? <laughs> It'll lead you right here. It has a calendar with times and dates, which will tell you when and where it will gather to become what it is, to realize, to actualize itself. And you can either show up and be there and participate and be part of that realization, that actualization, or not. You can be in the temple as the temple is physically and geographically formed, or you can be elsewhere. Life is in the temple because Jesus is in the temple. And that temple, as far as we are concerned, is the liturgically gathering apostolic Eucharistic Church. That's what it is. This is where we fulfill the very meaning of our existence. This is where we offer ourselves to God in sacrificial worship as a community. We do this for one reason only. Not because of what we derive from it. Not because of the residual effects and benefits. That is not why we do it. There was one reason we do this, that we come together to receive the body of Christ and we worship God and offer ourselves to God as a community. It is what shapes us and forms us and makes us human beings. And we do it because it is the right thing to do. That's it. When you have a revelation of what you are as a contingent being, when you have a revelation of who God is, there is only one appropriate response, and that is to offer yourself in total sacrificial worship. That's it. There's no other reason. 
if you are thinking of another reason while you are worshiping God, you are undermining what is supposed to be happening. A lot of people struggle connecting with God. They're looking for an emotional experience. If you do that, you're going to cause yourselves problems. You're going to miss out on what worship is all about. You're actually going to miss the thing you're looking for by looking for it. You just come. You just give yourself. To be looking for the residual benefit of offering yourself in worship is to miss the benefit of offering yourself in worship. It undermines the very act of worship. We offer to God in complete freedom our whole selves because it is the only reasonable and right thing to do. It is a necessary response when we realize who God is and what we are in relation to Him. And to do it for any other reason will hinder the purity of our sacrifice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.